A good afternoon to those of you who are joining us here in London, both in person and over the phone and web. And a very good morning to those of you in the US. Welcome to BP's 2010 strategy presentation. Uh, before we get going, for the benefit of our audience here in London, you can see behind me, I hope, the safety evacuation guidelines. We're not planning to test the alarm system today, so if you hear anything, please proceed as advised. Further details are in a handout that's uh, on your chair. For those of you who can't see us, I have alongside me Byron Grote, our CFO, Andy Ingalls, Head of EMP, and Ian Conn, Head of Refining and Marketing. And with us in the audience, uh, we also have Bob Dudley, who now looks after the Americas and Asia. Many of you know him from his TNKBP days. Uh, Steve Westwell, my Chief of Staff, who, amongst other things, looked after alternative energy. And Sally Bott, somewhere, is um, Head of HR and one of the people who's been very much involved in helping us with the cultural change at BP over the last two or three years. I'm also particularly pleased to introduce Maxim Barsky, the CEO-designate of TNKBP, who, as many of you know, is spending five or six months with BP before going back uh, to, firstly, assume the deputy CEO role at TNKBP and then at, uh, at the end of this year, beginning of next year, take over the CEO role. So we have a former CEO and a yet a CEO-designate sitting together. <laughs> you might be able to interrogate them and get different perspectives on, on life in Russia. Let me begin with our usual cautionary statement. During our presentation, we'll be making forward-looking statements. Actual results may differ from these plans and forecasts for a number of reasons, such as those noted on this slide, most of which you will not be able to read, and also in our SEC filings. So, let me begin. This is today's agenda. I'm going to start by describing the economic environment and updating you on our performance to date. I'll also outline our plans for 2010 and beyond. Andy and Ian will then go into more detail on each of the, their businesses before we take your questions. The key message from all of us is that whilst our portfolio is amongst the best in the industry, our financial performance still has some catching up to do. We've made a lot of progress over the last three years, but there's more to be done. There's a real opportunity to make this portfolio work harder for us and for our shareholders, and we'll explain how we plan to make that happen. But first, let me start with the broader environment and how it's shaping our priorities. I think most people would agree that 2009 was an unusually volatile year for the world economy, and clearly that had an impact on the energy industry. In the short term, the global downturn has reduced energy demand, but over the longer term, the trend is increasingly upwards, Driven by industrialisation in the developing economies, global energy consumption will continue to rise. So the outlook for the industry is fundamentally robust. We anticipate that the world will consume around 45% more energy by 2030 than it does today, and that fossil fuels will remain the dominant source. Of course, there are some big questions and challenges, especially in the realm of policy where the question of how to meet rising demand in an affordable and sustainable way has risen to the top of the global political agenda. For a long time now, BP has advocated a proactive approach to climate change and supported action to curb carbon emissions. And we continue to believe that the world needs a diverse energy mix that incorporates 
all available sources, from oil sands to solar, and leverages investment in technology. There's no one single solution. A mix of resources and technologies will be required to deliver energy security and to lower CO2 emissions. Central to this is a need to promote efficiency to minimise the environmental impact of fossil fuels and to ensure that we make the best use of the world's energy resources. We also believe that encouraging free and open energy markets is the best way to induce change. A carbon price, preferably created by capping emissions, would provide a strong incentive to become more energy efficient and encourage investment in alternatives to fossil fuels. BP is supporting the transition to a lower carbon economy in a number of ways. Firstly, by improving energy efficiency within our own operations, as well as by developing more efficient products, such as BP Ultimate and Castrol Lubricants. Secondly, by using an internal cost of carbon when making investment decisions about fossil fuel projects. This will encourage investment in technology to reduce the carbon they produce. And thirdly, by promoting the lowest cost energy pathway to reduce carbon emissions. A good example is natural gas for power generation. Gas is easily the cleanest burning fossil fuel. It's efficient, versatile and abundantly available. We also continue to invest in our low-carbon businesses. Since 2005, we've invested more than $4 billion in alternative energy, and more recently, we've focused our activity in four key areas. In biofuels, we're converting sugarcane to ethanol in Brazil. In the UK, we're constructing a technology demonstration plant for biobutanol with DuPont. And in the United States, we're working on the conversion of lignocellulosic material to biofuels. In wind, we focus the business in the US, where we have more than 1.2 gigawatts of gross spinning capacity. We expect this business to become cash flow positive this year. In solar, we focus the business and are repositioning our manufacturing footprint to lower cost locations, principally in India and China. And in carbon capture and sequestration, we're concentrating on two major projects, one in California, the other in Abu Dhabi. We've recently been given considerable support by the US Department of Energy to move the California project forward. All of this is further supported by investment in research and technology. BP currently has 20 major technology programs underway. Around two-thirds relate to existing businesses in exploration and production and refining and marketing, and the remainder to new forms of energy and ways of making today's energy more efficient. We'll talk more about some of these today as we look at each of our business segments. Let me now turn to the oil and gas markets. We've begun to see economic recovery taking hold. To date, it's been led by China. In the major economies of the US and Europe, we expect recovery to be slow and gradual. Tracking the path of the world economy, oil demand grew in the fourth quarter of 2009, and we expect this to continue in 2010, led by increasing consumption in the non-OECD world. The oil markets look well supported by OPEC, but we expect gas markets to remain volatile. In refining, BP's global indicator margin averaged $4 a barrel in 2009, 
and remains extremely depressed, averaging around only $2 a barrel for the year to date. Excess capacity and substantial amounts of products in floating storage are capping margins even with the cold weather. Despite rising global demand, extra supplies from sources other than refineries, such as biofuels, as well as floating storage, are likely to limit refinery throughput still further. On top of all of this, close to 2 million barrels a day of additional refining capacity is expected to come on stream this year, although around half of this growth could be offset by closures in the US, Europe and Japan. With such weak fundamentals, we expect global refining margins to remain depressed. Yet in this volatile and uncertain environment, BP's forward agenda remains firmly on track. Our focus on safe and reliable operations is now strongly embedded in our business. We're continuing to build the core capabilities of our people and we've started to see the benefits of improved performance flowing through to the bottom line. Let me address each of these in turn. Safety remains our number one priority and we can see clear progress. There's been a significant reduction in the frequency of recordable injuries and the number of major incidents related to integrity failures has fallen. At the same time, we're reducing containment losses in our operations. We're continuing to improve our skills and capabilities as we roll out a common operating management system across our business. By the end of 2009, we'd achieved full implementation at 70 sites, covering around 80% of our operations, and the remainder will be completed in 2010. But implementation is just the beginning. Our operating management system provides the basis to now drive continuous improvement across all of our operations. In summary, we're strengthening the safety culture throughout our business and building a track record that we intend to become industry-leading. Our people agenda has been a key aspect of the company's transformation over the last few years. Not only have we refreshed the highest levels of leadership within BP, but we've also reviewed our whole approach to the organisation. We've developed a new leadership framework, ensuring we value and deepen specialist expertise, and we're fostering a culture of excellence and continuous improvement across all of our operations. Over the last two years, almost 22,000 people have left BP and over 14,000 have joined, accelerating the process of change within the company. We're focusing on deepening capability by putting the right people with the right skills in the right place. We're also ensuring they get the support to reinforce their technical and functional expertise through development programmes like our operations academies. We're continuing our drive to create a diverse and inclusive workplace to ensure we can attract and retain the best talent. And we've linked reward more closely to performance. Taking all of this together, a significant change is underway in our culture. It will ensure that we have the organisational quality to face the challenges that lie ahead. These changes have been clearly reflected in improved operational performance. Over the last two years, we've closed the competitive gap we identified in 2007 and restored momentum in our core businesses. In 2009, we grew production ahead of the guidance given to the market. We achieved 4% growth, 
building on the track record of momentum relative to our peers since 2000. In refining, we brought our US network back to full operation and our system is now back to pre-2005 availability levels. The drive to reduce costs and increase efficiency remains a key focus for everyone at BP. We started more than two years ago in our efforts to counter cost inflation and drive much greater efficiency into our business. In the upstream, we're the leading our payer group in driving down production costs, with BP's unit costs in 2009 12% lower than in 2008. Going forward, we'll maintain momentum through activity choice and supply chain management. In the downstream, our efficiency initiatives have reduced cash costs by more than 15% in 2009, and our goal over the next two to three years is to return costs to 2004 levels. For the group as a whole in 2009, we reduced our cash costs by more than $4 billion. Around 60% of this was due to our own actions, and the remainder to forex and lower fuel costs. We intend to sustain this momentum through a focus on continuous improvement and operational excellence. Cash costs are expected to fall further in 2010. Andy and Ian will outline our plans in more detail and explain how we're going to do this. As we predicted, our operational progress has translated into improved relative financial performance. Much lower oil and gas prices and very weak refining margins have created a challenging environment for the whole sector. But as this chart shows, the operational momentum in our business and our drive towards efficiency has clearly improved our performance relative to our peers. As well as delivering a good operational performance in 2009, we saw significant strategic progress right across the company. In ENP, we achieved major new access to resources, most notably in Iraq, and made a series of discoveries, including the giant Tiber field. Our 2009 resource replacement ratio was over 250%. We've maintained our strong track record of reserve replacement with a 17th consecutive year of reported reserve replacement above 100%. Year-on-year production growth was 4%. We started up seven major projects and sanctioned two major new developments. In refining and marketing, our refining system has been fully restored. We've decapitalised our US convenience retail business and reduced the geographic footprint of our international businesses. At the same time, we've reduced our costs by 15%. Alternative energy is more focused and disciplined, and we've also furthered our corporate simplification agenda by reducing headcount by around 7,500. So, all in all, good progress. But what about the future? How will we maintain momentum, and where's the opportunity? Let me begin with our portfolio of assets. 2009 strategic progress is part of a longer track record. Over the past decade, our strategy has allowed us to build a portfolio of great quality and huge potential, equal in our view to any in our industry. Andy and Ian will detail the opportunities in each of their businesses, but I'd like to give you a sense of the quality of the portfolio. In EMP, we have a history 
as, a, as both an efficient and successful explorer. This has given us a reserve replacement track record which is amongst the best in the industry and a long-lived asset base with a bias to conventional oil. We have confidence in robust medium-term growth and considerable potential to apply new technologies to enhance recovery. In refining and marketing, we have less overall exposure to refining than our peers. We've high-graded our portfolio over the past decade to end up with, on average, larger and more advantaged refineries than the other super majors. We believe we have the best supply optimization capability and a set of world-class international businesses. Both the challenge and the opportunity is that while our portfolio ranks amongst the best in the industry, our financial performance has yet to reflect this. There's now a real opportunity to make this portfolio work harder for us, and we intend to do just that. So how do we define the opportunity? There are many ways to view it, from company-wide issues, such as the gapping earnings versus our peers, to return on capital employed versus the competition. And from segment-level issues, such as improving refining efficiency and closing the gap in fuels value chain performance in the United States, to improving efficiency in our drilling and the execution of projects in the upstream. Whichever way you look at it, there are significant opportunities for improvement, and in every case, firm plans are in place to close the gaps. Our direction is clear. It is the unrelenting pursuit of competitive leadership in relation to cash costs, capital efficiency and margin quality. We believe we've made a good start, but it's only a start. Our goal over the next few years is to realise the latent potential of our asset base by improving the efficiency and effectiveness of everything we do. We will vigorously drive cost and capital efficiency whilst at the same time maintaining our first priority of safe and reliable operations. We believe there's still a considerable prize to be had from embedding a culture of continuous improvement across the organisation. In exploration and production, we'll drive cost and capital efficiency through a new organisational structure. This will provide clearer accountabilities and a centralised approach to project management. In refining and marketing, we focus on driving efficiency, quality and integration as we start to realise the potential of our refinery network and restructured fuel value chains. All of this will be underpinned by our continuing investment in technology and by the new culture we are establishing in BP. Let me now hand over to Andy and Ian to take you through the plans in more detail, beginning with Ian P and Andy. Thank you, Tony, and good afternoon. As you just heard, 2009 was another very good year from E&P, with continued strong strategic and operational momentum. I have two big messages that I'd like you to take away today. First, we continue to strengthen the portfolio to underpin long-term volume growth, and I'm confident that at a $60 oil price, we can sustain average production growth from 2008 at 1% to 2% per annum out to 2015 and see increasing potential to sustain growth to 2020. Second, we are resolutely focused on driving sustainable capital and cost efficiency improvements. 
We have been making progress, but as Tony has said, there is much more to do, and we are in action to secure these opportunities. I want to talk about our progress and our future in three parts. Our portfolio, founded on strong and growing resource base. The growth in production, we foresee, out to 2015 and then beyond 2015. And growth from efficiency, where we have a significant opportunity to improve returns. Our strategy is clear. We invest to grow production safely, reliably and efficiently. This involves strengthening our portfolio of leadership positions in the world's most prolific hydrocarbon basins, enabled by the application of technology and strong local relationships. And it involves sustainably improving cost and capital efficiency, driven by deep technical capability and a culture of continuous improvement. Our portfolio is strong and diversified. It's a four million barrel a day business, enabling economies of scale. We have material position in the world's best oil and gas basins. Our portfolio is balanced, 60% oil, 40% gas. And it's characterized by strong base businesses, which we have operated for decades, and new areas of growth for the future. Our resource base is 64 billion barrels oil equivalent, it's high quality, biased towards conventional resources, and will underpin sustained long-term growth. Let's look at the ways in which we strengthened our portfolio in 2009. We added to our exploration inventory, deepening in the Gulf of Mexico, Egypt, and Indonesia. We further expanded our shale gas portfolio by securing a new resource position in the Eagleford Shale, we established a coal bed methane position in Indonesia, and in Jordan we agreed to join the National Petroleum Company to exploit the Risha gas field. We entered Iraq, where with CNPC we'll expand production from the supergiant Rumela field. Over the last two years, through exploration, appraisal and access, we've added a total of around 7.5 billion barrels of new resources. That's five years of production replaced in two years, and it excludes Iraq. Equally important, we've added exploration resources efficiently. Our discovery cost was $1.40 per barrel in 2009. This is consistent with our track record over the past five years of having the lowest discovery cost in the industry. Now let me turn to the pull-through of those resources to reserves and ultimately to production. In the past five years, we've grown our non-proved resource base from 39 to 45 billion barrels through a combination of exploration, access, field extensions, and improved recovery. This translates into extending the life of our portfolio from 39 to 43 years of, of production at today's rate. This scale of resource enables us to execute quality through choice. We don't have to do everything. We establish projects only when the resource is fully appraised. We progress projects only when they're fully optimized. The quality of the resource is also improving. Over the past five years, we've increased the contribution of additional reserves 
from high margin areas such as the Gulf of Mexico, Azerbaijan, Angola and the North Sea. 2009 resource and reserve replacement shows continuing growth. With a reported reserve replacement ratio of 129%, it was our 17th consecutive year where we achieved over 100%. Excluding TNKBP, our reserves replacement ratio was also above 100%. Normalizing for the price impact between average 09 prices and year-end 08 prices, it still remains above 100%. And the application of the new SEC rules accounted for only 6% of 2009 reserve editions. So, however you look at it, 2009 was another year of 100% plus reserve replacement. Reserves were added across the portfolio, from the North Sea, North America Gas, Gulf of Mexico, Trinidad, Asia Pacific, Angola, and TNKBP, with more than 90% from conventional oil and gas. It was not driven by a significant number of major project sanctions. As previously signaled, 2009 was a light year for projects reaching final investment decision. It was driven by strong base management in our incumbent positions, translating into approved developed reserve replacement ratio of 139%. This should give you further confidence in the robustness of the base performance underpinning our projection of volume growth. Not only was it strong performance in terms of reserves replacement, it was also delivered efficiently, with 2009 finding a development cost of $12 per barrel, the lowest in the last five years. Today's F&D is tomorrow's DDNA, and this is an important signal of the quality of the resource base we're pulling through. Now let's turn to production growth, Firstly, out to 2015. I shared with you our production outlook a year ago. Nothing has changed, including the 2010 forecast, except we're confident to extend the outlook to 2015. At $60 per barrel, as used last year, annual average volume growth remains within the 1% to 2% range from 2008. This view is conservative in that it doesn't include any volume contribution in the Middle East from either Iraq or renewal of our Abu Dhabi licenses, the first of which expires in 2014. We're currently in constructive dialogue with the government of Abu Dhabi on license renewal. This is a forecast at $60 per barrel, and the actual growth rate will depend on a number of factors, including the oil price, PSA effects, and OPEC quota restrictions. But it is a robust production outlook, and my confidence stems from our strong base performance, as well as our major project portfolio proceeding as planned, both in terms of FIDs and startups. Now, I'll take a look at these projects in detail. We're currently planning to make final investment decisions for 24 new major projects in the next two years. Each project has been high-graded through our project selection and progression pro process. They're concentrated in the Gulf of Mexico, the North Sea, Azerbaijan, and Angola, high-margin production areas that improve the portfolio. We are progressing projects not only in new fields, for instance, tubular bells in the Gulf of Mexico, West Nile Delta in Egypt, but also expanding our existing producing fields. 
Big fields keep getting bigger, and the extension of known resources also means lower execution risk. This has been proven many times. For example, the next phase is Shirag oil field in Azerbaijan and further development of Atlantis. The second phase of Atlantis started last year and had immediate success in the first well in the northern segment of the field. This gives us confidence to continue to expand this phase in 2010. So a long list of major project FIDs that grow production out to 2015 off a strong base. We continue to improve our track record of on-time project delivery. In the last three years, we had 28 project startups, including seven in 2009. This slide shows our upcoming projects in more detail. Over the 2010 to 2015 timeframe, we plan to bring on stream a total of 42 projects, which we expect to contribute around 1 million barrels a day to production by 2015. We are achieving this performance without increased capital investment. In fact, in 2009, our improvement in capital efficiency resulted in lower investment than 2008. This was largely due to our drilling performance, coupled with our management of sector deflation. We expect 2010 organic investment to total around $15 billion. Taking 2009 inorganic activity into account and expected further efficiency gains in 2010, we believe we'll be able to increase activity by approximately 10% in support of long-term growth. In addition, we're investing through TNKBP and Pan American Energy. Neither is reported as part of BP's capital expenditure but both are important self-funding components of our overall growth. So to recap, I've demonstrated my confidence in the strength and depth of our resource base and its conversion to production in the medium term. Now let's turn to growth beyond 2015. BP's strength lies in operating at the frontiers of geography and technology and executing projects at a scale only a few companies can take on. This has been our history for 100 years, and it's also our future. As a result of the significant growth in our resource base over the last two years, I'm increasingly confident of the potential to sustain production growth out to the end of this decade. Further out, there are many other things I could talk about, such as the Arctic, but they are for 2020 and beyond. I'll focus today on three key sources of growth for the second half of this decade, which play to BP's technology and relationship strengths. Firstly, the deep water. Secondly, gas, in particular unconventional gas. And thirdly, management of the world's giant oil fields. Among the majors, we're the leading deep water producer and have developed strong capability. We believe significant yet-to-find resources remain in the world's deep water basins. We will continue to grow our deep water resources and production throughout this decade. We have four key deep water positions. The Gulf of Mexico, where the recent Tiber discovery and strong production from Thunderhorse have strengthened our number one position. Angola, where we've made 19 discoveries in Block 31, our project pipeline, together with existing production from BP-operated Greater Plutonio and partner-operated interests in Block 15 and 17, will underpin production growth in this decade. 
Egypt, where our major gas discoveries in the West Nile Delta position, position us for longer-term growth. And Libya, where we hold an acreage position of 30,000 square kilometers and plan to drill our first well later this year after completing BP's largest offshore 3D survey. In the Gulf of Mexico, we significantly strengthened our portfolio in 2009. We successfully started up three projects ahead of schedule, Dorado, King South, and the second phase of Atlantis. These projects, along with strong performance from Thunderhorse, enabled Gulf of Mexico installed capacity to reach 500,000 barrels per day. We made a giant oil discovery, Tiber, drilled to over 35,000 feet, the deepest oil and gas discovery well drilled. We are now progressing with appraisal. We drilled a successful appraisal well in an untested segment of the Mad Dog field. With the additional hydrocarbon resources found, Mad Dog is firmly established as a third giant field in BP's Gulf of Mexico portfolio, joining Thunderhorse and Atlantis. We have a strong pipeline of projects. We're progressing well on material new hub developments, from significant discoveries in the Lorry Basin, Freedom and Tubular Bells, and our paleogene giants, Cascada and Tiber, plus our interest in partner-operated Great White and Mars B fields. We see the potential for production from this province to continue to grow this decade. The second source of growth for the future is gas. Currently, we produce approximately 8.5 billion cubic feet per day and expect continued steady growth throughout the decade, with our gas weighting increasing from 40 to 45%. In our gas fields, we have a total resource of 130 TCF. Our resources are diversified in terms of pricing, 2.5 billion cubic feet per day into LNG in 2010, and in terms of mix of conventional and unconventional. The enormous depth of our gas portfolio is shown on this map. Today we have material positions in North America, Trinidad, and the North Sea. We also have a portfolio of high-quality opportunities for the future. We see growth from the Nile Delta in Egypt through two new projects and continued exploration. There will be a second phase of Shaq Denise in the Caspian, a giant field by any standard. We plan to expand in Indonesia, where there's new potential around our Tangu LNG facility. We have coal bed methane opportunities through our Vico JV and our newly acquired PSA. In Australia, there's the Browse LNG development and North Rankin II. And in China, we are currently assessing opportunities for coal bed methane and shale gas with CNPC and Sinopec. In the Middle East and North Africa, we have accessed strong resources. In Oman, the Kazan and Makram fields are under appraisal, as is a Buret field in Algeria. We are in the early stages of assessing gas potential onshore Libya. Confidence in the development and scale of our global unconventional gas resources comes from decades of experience and know-how in North America. We have 42 TCF of resources in the lower 48 in Canada, of which more than 80% is unconventional. We produce over 2 billion cubic feet per day. 
In 2009, we further expanded our shale gas portfolio by securing a 5TCF position in the Eagleford. We now hold material positions in four top-quality shales, the Woodford, Fayetteville, Haynesville, and now the Eagleford, with a combined resource potential exceeding 10 TCF. The important metric here is not the number of acres we hold, but the quality of the resource. Leadership in unconventionals is about technology, imaging and identifying the best locations, combining horizontal drilling with fracking and low-cost factory drilling. We continue to drive down costs through efficiency and technology innovation. We are demonstrating we can get more out of these resources than others. For example, within a year of purchase, we increased Woodford well rates by 60%, and the latest well initial production rate was 10 million cubic feet per day. That's three times the pre-BP rate. We are drilling longer laterals and staying in pay through improved geosteering. We are also fracturing wells with more stages. This U.S. unconventional know-how is being rapidly transferred to our global portfolio in Amman, North Africa, and Indonesia. The third source of longer-term growth is our deep capability in managing the world's giant oil fields, gained from experiences from Prudhoe Bay to Samatlaw and from ACG to Thunderhorse, all of which make our entry into Iraq a natural fit for BP. Let me give you an update on our progress on Rumela. BP has a long history with Rumela, dating back to its discovery in 1953. We provided technical assistance from 2005. Since our access in 2009, we've made a lot of progress. In December, we signed the contract and agreed the initial production rate. The budget and work program for the year have now all been approved. BP and CNPC are establishing a strong relationship with the South Oil Company, helping to leverage their presence and resources. We're focused on raising production by 10%, and there are agreement once we've attained this level, we can recover costs from incremental production. By 2015, Rumela has the potential to be the second largest producing oil field in the world. The contract and the organization are structured in a way that allows us to develop Rumela profitably. We see this as the beginning of a long-term relationship with Iraq and are continuing to look for further opportunities. Let me up update you now on TNK BP. Our Russian joint venture is a continuing success story. The new shareholder agreement and the board are working well, with the independent directors playing a full role. The board appointed Maxim as CEO designate, and he's currently spending time with BP prior to taking over at the end of 2010. Two ex-BP senior managers, including the COO, are members of the management board. Operations are also going very well. Safety performance was the best ever last year. Volumes are up 2% versus 2008. New project startups are on track. Dividends are strong. And TNK has paid over $100 billion in taxes since inception. In 2010, capital investment is expected to increase to almost $4 billion gross in order to progress a rich opportunity set. Production growth will continue at a rate 
of 1% to 2%. And management will continue to focus on cost efficiency to improve returns. TNK's financial framework is strong, as evidenced by the recent upgrade of its debt rating, provides a good opportunity for us to continue to invest in a material way in Russia. TNK BP has a strong production base, of which around 75% comes from West Siberia. This includes Summit Law, where for several years we've applied technology to sustain production. Last year was the beginning of the transition in TNK BP to adding new greenfield projects with a ramp-up of VC, UVAT and Kamenoya. These projects will underpin continued growth through 2015. Longer-term growth will come with the development of a new province in the Yumel Peninsula, specifically the Ruskoya, Suzanne and Tagul fields, which are all proximate to existing pipeline infrastructure. Technology is the heart of strengthening our portfolio. It enables us to grow our existing resources, reach currently inaccessible resources, and improve capital efficiency. We bring a distinctive technology offer when partnering with resource holders. Our model is simple, and it delivers. We continuously reinvent our leadership in the fundamental aspects of our business, imaging reservoirs, drilling, and completing wells, improving the recovery of hydrocarbon from our reservoirs. We continuously find solutions to real business problems. Our 10 flagships shown at the center of this slide are the primary vehicles for ensuring our technical experts are focused on solving the Pacific challenges in our portfolio. And we leverage our global scale. These flagships bring our technical experts together and enable us to rapidly share solutions across the portfolio. A good example of how our model delivers is advanced seismic imaging, where we reinvented how onshore 3D seismic is acquired with independent, simultaneous sweeping acquisition technique. We recently deployed this in Libya, where we're able to capture up to 10 times more shock points per day than with traditional seismic. This has allowed us to acquire 8,000 square kilometers of high-quality seismic in just over a year, whereas in the past it would have taken five years. This is one of just many examples. I could talk for hours about the impact of our technology flagships. The point is the prize is significant. Each flagship has the potential to add a billion barrel of reserves. So in summary, our growth to 2015 is underpinned by the strength of the base and the pipeline of quality conventional projects coming forward for final investment decision. The key sources of continuing growth beyond this are expansion in the deep water, growing gas, and taking advantage of opportunities to deploy our expertise in managing giant oil fields, all of which is enabled by the application of technology. This gives me the confidence that we can continue to average 1% to 2% production growth per annum to 2015, and we have increasing potential to sustain growth out to 2020. But that's only half the story. The other half is about driving cost and capital efficiency. While we've demonstrated improving efficiency over the past two years, the remaining opportunity set is significant. 
There are three actions underway to capture this. Firstly, how we're organized, fundamentally changing the way we work. We've established a new centralized developments organization with, a, with accountability for, for managing all major projects across the upstream to drive capital efficiency. In the past, we did not leverage the scale of our project's portfolio. For example, we have 15 major projects being FID'd with subsea infrastructure in the North Sea, Angola, Gulf of Mexico, Egypt, and Trinidad. We will make significant efficiency gains by using standardized designs and equipment. We demonstrated the effectiveness of this approach in the development of ACG using standard platform designs. We're now going to use the same approach across the whole of the upstream. We're also transitioning to a standardized functional strategic performance unit organization to improve the efficiency of our operations. For example, when we centralized drilling and completions in the North Sea, their drilling performance improved to first quartile through accelerating the pace of learning and deployment of technology. Here, too, we're going to use the same approach across the whole of the upstream. By retaining the SPU structure, we maintain the strong foundation of our local relationships. Secondly, deepening our capability. This is about building a more highly skilled workforce. For example, we're creating a roadmap for developing every professional and have just opened a new global learning center in Houston, which you should all come and see. It's about intentional learning, a step change in the way we develop our staff. And finally, enhancing capital discipline. We've re-engineered how we make capital choices with greater rigor in decisions at the front end, driving quality through choice. These changes are in service of delivering sustainable improvements in the efficiency and the key drivers of our business. They are the most fundamental changes to the upstream since the 1998 merger. So what do they mean in terms of the potential for performance improvement? As I will illustrate, the prize is significant, and we have clear plans to deliver it. Let me start with the supply chain. We started to make improvements in our supply chain in 2008, and in 2009 were successful at capturing deflation. However, based on internal benchmarking, we believe we have a significant opportunity to improve our performance in the way we procure goods and services and manage suppliers. Sustainable performance improvement, irrespective of the environment. The key point of access is category management, which is about the consistency of the strategies we use to approach the marketplace, the rigor with which we put contracts in place, and the way we proactively manage them to stop leakage, which is our major challenge today. Currently, we have around 30% of our spend under category management, whereas a sector leader has 80%. Closing this gap is a significant opportunity. The new centralized developments organization will accelerate the implementation of category management for our major projects. You can see on this slide the initial progress we've made in managing the supply chain through to our production costs. In 2009, we reduced unit production costs by 12%, equivalent to $400 million pre-tax replacement cost profit. 
Whilst the external environment is now more challenging, we believe we can sustain momentum through category management and also through increasing the efficiency and execution, through leveraging our functional SPU organisations and through prioritising activity with better plans driven by a culture of continuous improvement. As one important caveat, safe and reliable operations always come first, whatever cost-efficiency measures we undertake. Turning to our major projects, we are improving, but we still have more to go. For our operated major projects as a whole over the last five years, we've overspent by 20% relative to the sanction estimates. While 5% was due to industry-wide inflation, the remaining 15% of the gap was from the inconsistency in our approach to project management. Actions are in place to close this performance gap, an opportunity of around $700 million of capital per annum. I've already covered the supply chain. In project execution, the centralized developments organization will be the catalyst for driving fundamental improvement through greater standardization, as in the subsea example I gave you earlier, improved organizational efficiency, stronger capability, and faster learning. A third area where we have significant opportunity is drilling and completions. We spend around $6.5 billion a year on this, of which 60% is drilling. We're targeting performance improvement in every basin in which we operate through the application of BP's technology and beyond the best process. This deconstructs each step of a well and sets a technical target for it. For each step, we then aim to achieve the technical limit. We learn as a result, and then the process is repeated for the next well, always targeting to do better. Global benchmark data shows we have already the best in some basins, but in others, we aren't. Over the past two years, we've improved by circa 15%. However, if we drilled all wells at best in basin levels, we can deliver another $500 million of capital saving per annum. I'd now like to conclude. We finished another year with strong momentum. We extended our track record of more than 100% reserve replacement to 17 years and had another successful year of exploration and new access that further strengthened our resource base. We delivered volume growth and improved efficiency by reducing our unit production costs by 12%. The strength of our resource base, together with another strong year of performance, gives me confidence in the future. We're pulling through a strong list of quality projects that will underpin average volume growth of 1% to 2% to 2015. Last year, I said we had the potential to continue to grow production at an average of 1% to 2% out to 2020. This year, we can see that potential much more clearly and have increased confidence in delivery. What has also become clearer is that the size of the remaining opportunity set to improve efficiency is significant, and we are in action to capture that opportunity. This is what our growth gender is all about, and my entire leadership team is behind it. Ian, over to you.
Thanks, Andy, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to update you on progress and prospects <clears throat> excuse me, for refining and marketing. 2009 was a very challenging year for R&M, particularly due to the weakness of the refining environment. But we've closed the gap versus the competition and delivered significant performance improvement. In absolute terms, the returns from this segment remain low. The good news, however, is that there's still much more room to travel as we deliver improvements beyond our achievements to date. After nearly three years leading this business, I'm more convinced than ever of the relative quality of our asset positions, the strength of our brands and people, and the opportunity these offer to continue to improve our competitive performance. Today I'm going to cover our 2009 performance and how we've closed the competitive gap, how cost efficiency, portfolio quality and integration, and growing margin share will drive further sources of performance improvement, and our investment plans for 2010, and therefore what you might expect from us going forward. <clears throat> so let me start with an overview of the turnaround of R&M and where we've got to. The agenda we set out in 2008 across these five dimensions is enduring. Safe and reliable operations remain the number one priority. In 2009, we had one of the best years in terms of safety performance, with many of our personal and process safety measures comparing favorably with industry peers, <clears throat> and we had no workforce fatalities. This is very encouraging and is down to the tremendous efforts of the team and our focus on process safety, training, targeted risk reduction programs, and our operating management system, or OMS. To date, we've completed the rollout of OMS at all of our uh, operated refining and petrochemical sites. We've been focusing a lot on improving core processes and behaviors associated with engendering a stronger performance culture in the organization. Turnover in senior management in R&M has approached 50% as we focused on getting the right people with the right skills into the right roles. We've redefined our executive processes and functional guidelines to drive clarity of roles and responsibilities across the segment. On financial performance, we set ourselves a challenge to close the gap versus our peers by the end of 2011 through a focus on <clears throat> restoring missing revenues, business simplification, and repositioning our cost efficiency. I'm very pleased to say that we've already exceeded our original targets in this respect, two years ahead of what we were originally aiming for. In phase one of the downstream turnaround, we've closed the three and a half to four billion dollar per annum competitive gap that I outlined two years ago. But this doesn't mean the journey's complete, and I'm excited by the prospect of delivering material further performance from this portfolio over the next three years even in these challenging times. The chart on the left shows R&M's ROSI relative to the competition for the period of 2003 to 2009. I've used this chart for the last three strategy presentations. As you can see, in 2009, our returns are at the top of the competitor set, albeit with the whole sector at very low levels. This reflects a significant step change in R&M's underlying performance. In the chart on the right, our net income per barrel of refining capacity has improved in absolute terms 
and was also the highest of all the supermajors last year. This demonstrates a strength and quality in our portfolio that goes beyond the recovery of our operational performance. It's underpinned by four key competitive advantages. A focused network of large, highly upgraded refineries sitting in integrated fuels value chains with strong fuels marketing and brands. Secondly, an ability to optimize and add value to these positions through integrated supply and trading activities. Thirdly, a focused petrochemicals portfolio with leading technologies and market shares and a high-performing premium lubricants business. Now, another way to look at our progress is to correlate our pre-tax profit margin per barrel with BP's refining global indicator margin. The shaded green band on this chart represents the strong correlation that existed between the global indicator margin and our reported pre-tax replacement cost profit per barrel between 2001 and 2004. This methodology tends to provide a good relationship on a 4Q rolling basis for BP or its competitors and allows us to judge relative business performance. Between 2005 and 2007, the significant setbacks in our U.S. refining operations, coupled with cost inflation and a complex organization, shifted our performance away from this band, culminating in a pre-tax earnings degradation of about $5 billion a year in 2007. What we can now see is that we're back, performing in line with the historical performance relationship to GIM, indicating that in aggregate the $5 billion performance gap has been restored. Some parts of the portfolio are doing better than historically, but as I'll come on to later, others still have some way to go, providing a further opportunity to improve beyond this historical profit-margin relationship. <coughs> there have been many drivers of the improvement since 2007. Two key aspects, which I've been updating you on each year, have been refining availability and headcount reductions. As Tony showed earlier, the 11% Solomon availability improvement since 2007 was primarily driven by the restoration of Texas City and Whiting. The rest of the portfolio has continued to perform well. Our average refining availability is now above 94% and approaching industry standards that you should expect from such a portfolio. In terms of headcount, excluding retail, we've reduced levels by over 4,500 against a 2008 target of 2,000, and senior management levels have been reduced by approaching 20% net against a target of 15%. The momentum of the last two years is also clearly visible if we look at our underlying pre-tax replacement cost profit in the context of a deteriorating environment. In 2009, we experienced a $1.8 billion degradation in environment, as shown in the red bar, primarily driven by falling refining margins. Despite refining margins falling by over 40%, we were able to deliver a 9% improvement in underlying pre-tax RCP in the year, corresponding to a performance improvement of $2.1 billion, as shown in the green bar. From 2007, the total improvement in performance has been $4.8 billion per annum, in line with what I described earlier. Now, as always, I provide you with a breakdown <clears throat> and a glass of water. Excuse me.
<coughs> I provide you with a breakdown of how the different parts of R&M's portfolio fared during the year. So starting with the fuel's value chains, we can see that despite the deteriorating environment, the absolute performance in aggregate has improved by $200 million since 08, with a $900 million decline in refining more than offset by a $1.1 billion improvement in the rest of the value chains. This underscores the way in which running the portfolio on an integrated basis is improving our overall results. Breaking the refining component down further, the $900 million decline represents the net impact of a $2.4 billion drop in refining margins in line with the GIM rule of thumb, offset by a $1.5 billion improvement in underlying performance. On a per-barrel basis, this represents approximately $1.6 a barrel of portfolio break-even improvement, and in 2008 conditions would have meant a profit of $0.80 a barrel for refining. Our next goal is to ensure that our refining portfolio is capable of breaking even in an environment similar to 2009. And the biggest opportunity in that relates to the United States refineries. Having got them running again, there's considerable inefficiency in the way in which we plan and execute work, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Our international businesses, which consist of lubricants, petrochemicals, and global fuels, have sustained and improved upon the excellent performance seen in 2008, despite the deteriorating market dynamics across the whole global economy, including material losses in volume and intense competitive pressures. Having established market leader positions, we see continued growth and performance from this portfolio, albeit at a slower pace than we've seen since 2007. So looking back over the last three years, we've come a long way and faster than we originally aimed for. Relative to 07, we set ourselves the task of closing the $3.5 to $4 billion per annum competitive gap over three to four years, and about half of it coming from restoring refining revenues and earnings momentum, about 20% coming from business simplification, and the remaining 30% coming from cost efficiency within our overheads and business support services. Of the $4.8 billion of improvement since 07, 2.8 has come through restoring refining revenues and strong supply and trading optimization. The oil trading and supply optimization activities had a very good year in 09, particularly in 1Q, although as volatility reduced later in the year, performance was below average in the fourth quarter. Business simplification has delivered around $1.4 billion dollars, surpassing the levels we first envisaged. This came from refocusing the portfolio into the fuel value chains by removing internal interfaces and simplifying the marketing footprint in lubricants and aviation. We've also successfully decapitalized our U.S. convenience retail portfolio. Beyond the benefits from simplification, most of which was delivered as cost reduction, Progress is fundamentally about repositioning our cost efficiency for the long run, and this is delivered at the rate originally expected, given it's a more structural and longer wavelength set of activities. So far, we've delivered $0.6 billion, largely from restructuring our head office, support, and functional organizations. Our three new regional business service centers are operational, and will start to deliver benefits over the next two years. <coughs> 
So that covers the history. I'd now like to turn to the environment we're likely to be operating within and our plans for further improvement in performance going forward. This chart is an extended version of the one Tony used earlier, showing refining margins going back to 1990 and corrected to $2,009. What I've concluded from this is that the golden age of refining during 2004 to 2008 was more of a golden moment, caused principally by rapid growth in China ahead of new build, and major operational outages resulting from a combination of meeting more stringent specifications, extreme weather conditions, and operational issues, including our own at Texas City and Whiting. Today, there's significant excess capacity in the market. It's therefore quite likely that we'll see margins similar to those during the 12 years from 92 to 03, during which utilization rates were much lower. In that period... Refining margins ranged from roughly $3 to $6 a barrel, as denoted by the grey band on this chart. 2009 margins were among the lowest of the last 20 years, and weaker refiners could not even cover variable costs, resulting in an estimated 3.5 million barrels a day of economic run cuts, closures, and mothballing. So, 2009 margins were at levels at which some refineries could not operate, even on a marginal basis, and this may therefore represent something nearing a floor. Given the relative quality of our refining portfolio, this underlines our conclusion that an appropriate target is to break even at 2009 margins, which will yield yield real advantage, implying a further performance improvement of $1.6 billion a year. Against this backdrop, I'd now like to turn to expectations for future performance. Relative to the historical performance I showed earlier, phase two of the improvement of R&M lies in moving the line up the page as represented by the yellow band on the chart. This is not meant to be a precise representation before you get your rulers out, but gives you a sense of what we see as possible. We're confident that we have competitive assets with material additional performance improvement potential, sorry, improvement potential, especially in U.S. refining. In the world we're seeing, there will definitely be winners and losers. And our job now is to make an already competitive portfolio a winning one in absolute terms and to do it sustainably. (coughs) We believe the way to win is through having a very high-quality portfolio with high-quality positions that is the right asset, footprint and location, operated efficiently and managed in an integrated manner and all clearly underpinned by safe and reliable operations. Turning to the sources of further performance improvement in Phase 2, we can see well over $2 billion per annum pre-tax. The largest part will come from repositioning our cost efficiency. As you might expect, given that our operations are now largely restored, we can see at least $1.5 billion per annum of further improvement potential. A large part of this will be from improving effectiveness with which we plan and execute work in U.S. refining. Secondly, we must continue to improve the absolute and relative quality of our portfolio and ensure that in the integrated fuels value chains, and in particular, they're operating in an effective, integrated, and joined-up way, utilizing only those assets and capital employed which enable them to do so. 
The main components in this area are the investment in modernizing whiting, as well as selective divestments of non-core assets within the fuel value chains. Taken together, we'd expect by the time the repositioned whiting comes on stream, a net improvement of over half a billion dollars per annum pre-tax. The final component of up to half a billion dollars a year of future performance improvement relates to using our skills, brands, technology and targeted revenue investments to grow margin share, largely in our international businesses, in oil trading and in other marketing channels. After ensuring continued focus on safe operations, this next phase is therefore mainly driven by a focus on efficiency, quality and integration, supplemented by some growth in margin share. And I'd like to touch on each of them in turn, starting with efficiency. This chart, which you've seen before, shows the significant step change in our cash costs in 2009. We were able to reduce costs by well over 15%, of which over half was underlying improvement. Our next target, excluding forex and energy price effects, is to get costs below 2004 levels, which translates into a reduction of about $1.5 billion a year. We need to do this if we're to perform effectively in a, in a refining environment similar to that which prevailed before 2004. Now, there are many targeted sources of this reduction. And let me start with the largest part, efficiency in refining. This is a chart of refining availability versus cost efficiency based on Solomon metrics. The large circles indicate where the refining portfolio is at specific points in time. To sustain improvement in refining, you've first got to focus on safety and availability and, the, and operational effectiveness and then turn attention to efficiency. As you can see, since 2004, we went from good availabilities, availability levels to very poor availability levels at around 75%, and our cost efficiency severely lagged the industry by 2007. This in part was driven by repair costs as we restored throughputs at Texas City and Whiting, coupled with our accelerated approach to take integrity management to a new level. However, it was also caused by poor planning and execution of work in many aspects of refining operations as we tackled a very broad agenda in a short period of time. There's significant opportunity to reverse this without damaging progress in safety. In the main, our focus will be to do the right things more efficiently and effectively rather than change the things that we're doing. As you can see from this chart, we've made significant progress on availability since 2007, but we've got further to travel in terms of efficiency. The dark green diamond denotes R&M's top three performing refineries. And as you can see, it's therefore eminently possible to walk and chew gum, getting both high availability and high cost efficiency. The major focus areas here are in terms of better planning and execution of work, whether for routine maintenance, turnarounds or projects, improved contractor management, better sourcing strategies and driving for improved energy efficiency. Having restored availability levels, the largest part of getting refining back to break even in an 09 environment must be cost efficiency and heavily weighted towards the United States. Outside of refining, there's also a significant prize. To sustain a winning position, it requires excellence in manufacturing efficiency, whether in lubricants or petrochemicals. We've made major inroads into procurement and supply chain management across R&M, 
but there's much more to do. The business service centres are now all established and we're cutting over more operations to them. This will enable significantly more effective and standardised transactional services and at a lower cost. We've spent a lot of time developing new end-to-end SAP-based back-office processes for the fuels value chains. This has been successfully implemented in Iberia and we now have plans to roll out a programme into the other regions. There's still room to reduce overheads, making embedded functions more efficient, improving the efficiency of logistics and marketing channels, and as I indicated earlier, we intend to keep our footprint very focused. I'd now like to turn to the portfolio quality and integration, starting with the fuels value chains. In an oversupplied market, there must be a total focus on quality, not quantity. In the first instance, it's about having the right quality of assets positioned in the right markets and in the right specific locations. From this base, it's then about strengthening our structural position versus the competition. We aim to only own those assets which, as part of BP, can win in their markets, which will compete for resources within the company, and in the case of the integrated fuels value chains, those which ensure strong, competitive, integrated positions. Our recent divestments of our ground fuels position in Greece and retail in France and announced plans to divest of certain pipelines and terminals in the United States are examples of interventions in line with this strategy. We also drive distinctive performance through supply optimization and trading. Integration is the end-to-end margin capture from crude oil to customer enabled by strong operations and optimization and supported by common processes and an efficient back office. Not all our fuel value chains are where we want them to be yet, but we've got plans to get them there. At the heart of the relative quality of our fuel value chains is the relative quality of our refineries. This chart on the left shows BP's refining portfolio compared to the other supermajors, and it's a plot of Nelson complexity versus average refinery size. As you can see, BP's refining portfolio is very competitive, with on average the largest unit size and equivalent complexity to other leading players. It's also worth noting that the interests in 10 refineries that BP has divested since the merger with Amoco had characteristics significantly worse than the current portfolio. That's that green blob in the bottom left-hand corner. This reflects our sustained strategy over the last decade of upgrading our refining portfolio. The graph on the right shows utilization changes between 08 and 09 based on the simple calculation of crude throughputs divided by nameplate capacity. There's a reasonably good correlation between portfolio quality and utilization, as you might expect. For BP, the dark bar is after correcting for increased utilization from the restoration of Texas City. The bottom line is that in a market like this, relative quality translates into relative business performance. So we're well positioned to compete, even during prolonged downturns in the refining cycle, provided we can get the cost efficiency of the portfolio into the right place. Our current focus in refining is therefore on performance and not portfolio high grading. Where our refining portfolio is not sufficiently margin capable to be competitive, we are making appropriate investments. 
We've built a coca at Castillon and are planning to upgrade both Toledo and Cherry Point with more product quality capability. The largest single investment we're making is at the Whiting Refinery. Our Whiting Refinery Modernization Project provides an excellent example of how investment in refining quality can leverage value even in very challenging margin environments. The Midwest is an attractive market in that it's deficit product. However, today, Whiting is a large refinery running sweet crudes with limited flexibility in a market close to the Canadian border. That location could give Whiting access to a wide range of low-cost heavy crudes, both from Canada and the Gulf Coast, but today it's not configured to process them. The project involves repositioning Whiting to be able to run much more heavy sour crude oil, including Canadian extra heavy oil. It involves a new crude distillation unit, a 100,000 barrel a day coker, world-scale hydro-treating and sulfur recovery, and improvements in infrastructure. It's about halfway through, on track and on budget, and is due on stream in 2012. The line at the bottom of this next chart shows the indexed historical profit performance of the Midwest fuels value chain against the Midwest refining margin on a similar basis to the R&M line I showed earlier. The wide green band at the top of the chart shows where the value chain would be with a modernized whiting for a range of light-heavy differentials. As you can see, based on this range, there are multiples of historic profitability available to the Midwest value chain, but accessing these takes considerable investment. The upgrade of the refinery will allow it to run a flexible and most likely lower-cost slate of crudes and will ensure enhanced margin capture through integration within the Midwest fuel value chain. Because Whiting is 15% of our total refining capacity, this upgrade will constitute a material increase in the overall profitability of refining and marketing. Finally, and very importantly, this upgrade enables full integrated margin capture for BP in any future EMP access to more Canadian heavy oil, irrespective of where the rent is captured in the upstream-downstream chain. Turning briefly to the international businesses, the focus on quality also applies. As with refining, a process of high grading has positioned them well to compete in today's challenging markets. This is particularly true in petrochemicals. The sale of our bulk olefins and derivatives business, Innovine, back in 2005 has left us with a select advantage petrochemicals portfolio concentrated in the growth markets of Asia. Our aromatics and acetyls business enjoys leading global market shares and technologies, whilst the startup of our SECO olefins and derivatives complex south of Shanghai in 05 has significantly extended our scale and reach within the region. Growth in these businesses continues to be robust and compares well against the competition. In 08, we brought on stream an expanded Juhai PTA plant. In 09, we added 30% to the cracker at SECO. And in 2010, we're going to bring on a new acetic acid plant in Nanjing. Our, our lubricants business is one of the most successful in the industry, again built on the fundamentals of leading product technologies, efficient blending, premium brands, and strong customer relationships. The global fuels businesses also enjoy excellent brands and customer relationships. The international businesses are particularly exposed to growth markets, 
with about 40% of their capital employed in the growing markets of China, India, Russia, Eastern Europe, the Pacific Rim, and Latin America. We expect the international businesses to contribute to grow margin share over time. I've now covered the, the performance potential we see in phase two. Beyond simply delivering an overall competitive performance, it's going to come from the areas of cost efficiency, portfolio quality and integration, and delivering margin share growth. So finally, I'd like to focus on what you can expect in terms of investment levels before summarizing. The green bars on this chart are net investment into R&M, i.e. the level of CapEx less divestment proceeds on a pre-tax basis. The blue dotted line is depreciation, and the black line is CapEx. What you can see is that since 2006, cumulative net investment has been on average about in line with depreciation. If you include the divestment of Innovene in 2005, then it remains well below depreciation. It's important to realize that as we focus on portfolio quality, we're effectively moving capital from less core assets into those key to competitive success while net investing at broadly the level of depreciation. For 2010, this is also true, despite a headline CapEx number of just below $4 billion, including the major investment and in whiting. Longer term, you should continue to expect net investment of marginally above depreciation, depending on the quality of the investment opportunities. This means that, other than price effects on working capital, we expect to hold capital employed essentially flat. With our plans to grow profitability, we're targeting to improve returns. If you add the potential performance improvement I've indicated to our delivery in 2009, it's not too hard to see post-tax returns of approaching 10%, even in 2009 conditions. It's this sort of absolute performance which we must now strive to deliver. So finally, to summarize, a lot's been achieved in R&M in the last two years, and I'm very proud of the team who've delivered it. We've closed the competitive gap two years ahead of our original plan and delivered approaching $5 billion a year of underlying performance improvement. We've achieved this in parallel with improving our safety performance. The market will remain extremely challenging, and the only place to stand is one of quality. Our portfolio has been materially high-graded since 2000, and we'll continue to focus and strengthen the portfolio to compete effectively, both in a relative and absolute sense. We've identified the next phase of performance improvement over the next two to three years, totaling a pre-tax opportunity of over $2 billion a year. This will come from cost efficiency through better execution, a focus on increasing quality and integration of the operations, and growing our margin share. And specifically, we aim to ensure that safety and reliable operations remains our number one priority, reduce, reduce cash costs to below 2004 levels, a large part coming from improving the refining portfolio break-even to 2009 conditions, improve the portfolio quality and integration of fuels value chains, focusing on advantaged assets and completing the modernization project at Whiting, continue margin share growth, particularly in the international businesses, and finally ensure that the net investment remains at or just above depreciation. Through this, I'm confident we 
have a business able to be highly competitive, deliver returns above cost of capital, and make a sustainable contribution to group cash flow and dividend. Let me now hand you back to Tony. Thank you very much, Ian. Great job. Um, Let me summarise the key points from today's presentation. Our goal over the next few years is to realise the latent potential of our asset base by improving the efficiency and effectiveness of everything we do, whilst at the same time maintaining our priority of safe and reliable operations. In E&P, we're pulling through a strong list of projects to deliver an annual average production growth rate of 1% to 2% out to 2015, and we see increasing potential to sustain growth to 2020. At the same time, we've established a new centralised developments organisation with accountability for all major projects. We expect this to be a catalyst for significant improvements in capital efficiency through standardisation, organisational efficiency, strong capability and faster learning. There's also the potential to realise large capital savings by drilling the best well in every basin. We've already made progress on reducing production costs and we will maintain that momentum through activity choices and better management of the supply chain. In refining and marketing, we will focus on driving efficiency, quality and integration as we continue to realise the potential of our refinery network and restructured fuels value chains. We have plans to return costs to below 2004 levels and are targeting break-even in refining in a similar environment to last year. So what does that all mean for our financial framework? In 2009, we essentially balanced cash inflows and outflows at $60 a barrel despite much weaker than expected refining margins and North American gas prices. Clearly, the improved performance in our underlying business added significantly to our cash flows. We therefore ended the year with gearing at the bottom of our 20 to 30% target band, a good outcome. Looking ahead, we expect to be able to continue to balance cash inflows and outflows, even if conditions are equally challenging. This will allow us to continue to invest at the right pace to efficiently grow the company and meet our dividend commitment to shareholders. CapEx for the group is expected to be around $20 billion in 2010. And so to conclude, our strategy remains unchanged, but we're now embarking on a new phase to realise the potential of the portfolio built over the past decade. We have considerable scope to pursue sector leadership, particularly in costs, capital efficiency and margin quality. In the upstream, we'll focus on cost and capital efficiency to deliver profitable growth. In the downstream, we'll drive further efficiencies and focus on quality and integration. We will maintain our disciplined approach to alternative energy and we'll continue to unlock corporate efficiency through a culture of continuous improvement. The future looks challenging, but it always does. But we've emerged from 2009 in great shape with renewed confidence and determination. We can see the prize and believe we're well positioned to capture it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening today. We'd now be delighted to take your questions. I now need to change mics.
And we're going to do this by... We have a lot of people on the, uh, the phone and web, but we'll start by uh, being courteous to those of you who've made the effort to, to turn up in person. So we'll start... Who would like to start? Tipan. Can you, um, as you ask the question, can you give your name and affiliation, please? Yeah, hi. Good afternoon, gents. Um, T-Pan, Jothlingham from Morgan Stanley. Um, just um, a question on capital intensity. Um, I think you've talked about investing at the right pace, uh, today's F&D being tomorrow's uh, DDNA. Um, I was wondering if you could just talk about all else being equal. Do you think the capital intensity for BP today is where you will be to deliver the sort of growth profile out to 2015? Um, the second question, just coming back to sort of the pipeline of FIDs, um, it's very different pipeline in the sense of what you were offering 12 months ago. Clearly, there's been a, a change in the macro environment. But what gives you that confidence that you can deliver that pipeline of FIDs this year, or what are the risks to, the, to those FIDs? Thank okay. you. I'm going to ask Andy to uh, talk to both of these, but I will probably come back and talk about capital intensity more broadly. If I start with the, the FIDs first, uh, uh, T-Pan, I think what gives me confidence in them is the opportunity that we have to standardise and execute these things as, as packages. And I think as you look at the centralised developments, uh, developments organisation, it's a huge opportunity to do that. You know, we've got 15 subsea uh, projects to undertake there. The ability to standardise around those group them as, as, as projects, bring real rigour, therefore, to a single concept, the interface with the supply chain. It reduces risks and it creates, it creates efficiency. And it isn't just in that. You, know, you can look forward to those. We're building you know, three gas plants uh, you know, in the next phase of Chateau Denise, uh, in Oman. Um, so there's the opportunity to create efficiency there. There are three jackets in that list. So as you look at it, um, I think the real opportunity we have now is to use the, the new model to execute efficiently. And I think the other thing that you look at in terms of the project list is that the relative quality of those projects is biased to the high margin areas. As we've resorted, we've put emphasis on the Gulf of Mexico, the North Sea, uh, Angola, Azerbaijan, where there's quality and margin. So you know, that's, uh, I, I think, the investment thesis for the FIDs. In terms of the capital intensity, um, I think what we're really trying to do here is ensure that we do it efficiently. Now, you know, what does that actually mean in terms of the overall capital? I think we're confident we're putting enough capital in 2010. We think there's about underlying at least a 10% improvement there. As we look to 2011, I think it's too early to say what the ultimate capital level will be. It'll depend on the pace at which we can actually see the efficiencies come through in terms of project execution. I think the drilling efficiencies are going to come through a little faster than the overall uh, sort of greenfield project facility side, and it'll be the interplay uh, of, of those two things. I think what you will see is uh, an investment level that ensures the, the delivery. It's a very rich uh, portfolio set, and I think you will see it being delivered with increasing efficiency. So I think ultimately it's the interplay of those two things that will set the level for 2011. I think the only thing I would add is that um, clearly Andy has outlined the opportunities we see in terms of capital efficiency. Uh, and, uh, and I do think you should expect to see gently rising levels of capital investment 
to underpin the future production profile, but gently rising, very gently rising. And it has to be more efficient. Uh, okay, I was going to go left and right. Is anyone else on the left? Yeah, John Rigby, I think it is. I, I can't see people very well. The lights are yeah, a bit bright at the lights. <laughs> so if I get... Yeah, thanks. It is John Rigby at UBS. Um, I've got three questions. One on the, on the, the financial framework. Um, if the oil price is at what it is today... Um, and given what you said about cash flow break-even, are you content to let debt drift down rather than reinitiate some kind of share buyback program to balance what has been a very constant level of, of net debt, I think, over the last four or six quarters? Um, and then on, on the upstream, um, looking at your exploration and access chart, it looked to me that there was only a few blobs of exploration. There was quite a lot of access, but the access seems to be of the sort of technology-driven exploitation type Access. And I wondered whether you could comment on whether you, you might be doing more exploration um, going forward. And then the last is specifically on Cascada. I noticed that the FID isn't in the 2010-2011, but you've got it in production by 2015. And I think there's been some debate about how difficult these things are, de are to develop. The implication being is that you're relatively confident that it can be developed in a relatively short time frame. Is that okay, correct? Well, thanks, John. We'll ask Andy to cover Cascida and exploration, and I'll talk about the financial framework. Yeah, I'll just give an update on Cascida. We're uh, one exploration well, one appraisal well today. We drilled a third um, well, second appraisal well this year in the uh, back end of 2010. Uh, that'll be our first uh, production test from the field, which will sort of go from the back end of 2010 into the beginning of of 2011. It's actually when we've got that production data, John, that we'll actually be confident, I think, in putting the FID date. So that's why it's, it's, it's not actually there. But, uh, you know, assuming success from that, and we'll start with a relatively modest early production system from Cascada. That's the way that we'll do it. And then you sort of have a four-year cycle, you know, that takes you to, to, to production in the 2015 uh, Time scale. So all, all I'd say on Cascada is that we, we, we continue to make progress. We obviously discussed it in depth with you when we met last year in, in, in April. Uh, and it's a considerable resource. And, you know, Tybra is, is of a similar quality. And the, uh, the production test on Cascada will create an analog for Tybra and we continue. So I think the, 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 real, the real challenge for us then, it's, it's sort of T-Pan's question, is then how do you get real efficiency into the development of the Palagene? Huge resource, you'd have Cascada and Tiber sort of moving in parallel post-2015. Uh, post um, on exploration and access, yeah, you're right. You know, um, I, I think that we've done a very good job on, on access. Um, I think there are areas where we can bring distinctive technology to bear, what we've done in Oman, what we've done in Jordan. Um, it's really the analog of the non-conventional gas skills that we have in, in, in North America gas and, and can apply them. And we're making good progress, good, good, good progress in, uh, in both the, the, those areas. Um, the license uh, build that we've also had in, 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 in eight and nine has, has been significant. So, you know, the, the, the portfolio of opportunity is building on the exploration side. And you're probably going to see... Uh, a measured increase in the exploration budget as, as we look at that opportunity set. But as Tony says, it's measured. Um, the resource build has been significant and its quality. The trick now is sort of not to lose the plot. You know, and we deeply, deeply believe in exploration fundamental that qu you know, quality through choice. You want to have more wells to drill than you actually choose to drill, and that leads to, to quality. And we're not going to lose that, that discipline. 
But the exploration acreage that we've capped in the last two years, I think, creates greater opportunity. Great. Thanks, Andy. It sounds almost like an explorer these days. And it's dangerous, isn't it? I'm working on it. <laughs> um, on the financial framework, I think the key word is flexibility. We need to ensure in a macroeconomic environment, which remains, certainly from our perspective, deeply uncertain, uh, we want to have flexibility and we, uh, we can expect us, therefore, to be prudent and cautious. That's a long answer to what I could have said is yes to your <laughs> question, but that is the reason why. I think this is a time to ensure that we've got the flexibility of the balance sheet to recognise the world going forward is pretty uncertain still. Yeah, Tony, can I just yeah, uh, absolutely, Brian. add to that? Uh, you, you were talking about the oil price, but uh, you know, sort of consistent with the, the uncertainty of the world, there are other factors that, that impact our cash flows and and uh, the gas price and, and refining margins, which were were weak uh, in in 2009 and are, are very uncertain as as we march into to 2010, play, play a role there as well. And, and although we we work with uh, a gearing ratio, uh, the net debt itself is is still a, a sizable number. It's uh, about 26 and a half billion dollars. So. That, that's a lot of debt. It's, uh, the service costs are, are low today, but we want to make certain that not only can we deal with, with the uncertainties of the, of the environment around us, also we have the flexibility to take advantage of, of opportunities if, if they come our way. Take one more on the left, then we go to the right. So. Neil, I think. Thanks. Uh, yes, it is, Tony. Uh, Neil McMahon with Sanford Bernstein. Um, uh, two questions. Uh, the, the first is maybe yourself, Tony, and uh, Andy can uh, talk really to uh, the strategy of going after unconventional gas in the U.S. by buying somebody else's discovered reserves when arguably you're, you, you've been either the largest gas producer in North America or very close to the, to the top of the list. And surely you should have enough of your own skills to get out there and, and get after the gas uh, yourselves. And just to want to get an idea of what the strategy is and why you're going to somebody uh, else to get that gas. And, and secondly, just turning back to Cascada uh, and uh, Tiber, um, what you've outlined, or it seems, that you could be in an early production system, which means if you roll Tiber into this, we might not be looking at peak production from both these fields combined until like 2020 or that sort of time when both these fields come on. Would that be the right way to think about this rather than your traditional um, uh, rapid ramp up uh, of a deep water field? Thanks. Okay, Andy. Yeah, right. Let's do the last one uh, first. Yeah, you're right. I think you, the, the key point about, uh, about the palogene is it's a very different resource characteristic. It, it's, um, it, it's tougher rock, it, it's more viscous oil. It'll have a natural characteristic of a long, uh, uh, flat profile. Um, and so what you can imagine in both uh, Cascada and Tiber is quite a, a lengthy period of, of development drilling, almost continuous development drilling. So it's one way you'll, you'll build a profile and then maintain it flat. And actually in the Gulf of Mexico, that's pretty good because you can dr you, you, your traditional Miocene developments, you know, an RTP of, of four or six or something, you're constantly putting bits of metal out there and, 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 and having to chase your tail. And having a base like uh, Cascada and Tiber there to support that portfolio and the mix between the Miocene and the Pelagene is going to be important. 
And I think as we progress uh, the paleogene developments, we're going to leverage technology and find you know, increasing ways to, uh, to drive the, the well rate. So I, I actually think it's a very balanced uh, portfolio. Uh, but you're right. You know, in terms of the ramp up, I can actually see this ramping up through not only 2020 but beyond. And, um, and we should see that as being, I think, a positive thing rather than a, a, a negative thing. In terms of uh, the, um, the North American gas shales, what I'd say is that you know, we've had sort of you know, um, a, 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 an entry point, which was buying other people's stuff, which was the Chesapeake deals that you talked about. Um, what have we added to that? We've added a huge amount, and you've seen it on the chart. You know, we've increased... Uh, the initial uh, production rates, you know, sort of uh, significantly above what was being achieved earlier. And that was about bringing our technology to it. So I think there was an existing resource. We've actually changed the economics of that resource by the technology that we brought. And it isn't just the, the, the fracking of the wells. It's actually the seismic that we brought. It's the ability to penetrate the right parts of the reservoir and then actually drill, uh, drill better wells. So I think there is real distinction in that, and we're benefiting from it. The latest deal in the Eagle Fed, which I'm not going to go into because it's different, is a classic sort of land acquisition. It's not actually going out and, and buying companies. It's land, and it's, it's an organic approach. So what I'd say is the strategy's evolved. You know, we made a step forward in terms of the Chesapeake deal, and then we've continued to move that with more traditional land access, which is why you haven't seen a big announcement about it, just quietly uh, building the portfolio. Okay, let's come across to the right. Gentlemen at the back. Um, Paul Spedding from HSBC. Um, you made a comment, obviously, that several of the recent ramp-ups that you've had have been very high margin. But if you look at the portfolio that's coming forward, and I'm thinking of uh, the Iraqi project and possibly some of the shale gas projects simply because of depressed realizations, you may find out that uh, your margins begin to come under pressure in the upstream. So you'd be faced with a situation where, although the volume profile was rising and the capex profile was rising, is there a risk that the uh, value profile could be flat or even perhaps falling. Um, I wonder if perhaps you could give us some reassurance about some of the other projects uh, that are out there and up and coming. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I think actually, um, if you look at the list of FIDs and the project startups that underpin the production out to 2015, firstly, there is nothing in it for Iraq. Uh, we can talk about Iraq if you want to, but there's nothing in it at all for Iraq. And secondly, if you look at the list of projects, it's exactly the same portfolio as we have on production today. So I think a reasonable way of looking thinking about it is nothing's changing. If you, you know, the list of projects is uh, Deepwater Gulf of Mexico, North Sea, Angola in the, in the main. So oily and price leverage with margins, good margins, and we wouldn't expect anything much to change. So I, I think it's actually um, quite strong and, and in, in that sense quite differentiated. Thanks, Paul. Um, was a lady at Thank you, gentlemen. Christine Tiskrainer from Standard & Poor's Equity Research. Um, first, in refining, you seem to be, well, you need to focus on the U.S. refineries, yet we hear that a lot of the changes that need to be made and that you want to make, that you're not getting the required permits. So you sort of, we get the impression that you're in a circle where you need to make improvements the government is sort of uh, putting a stop or making more requirements and you're not getting anywhere. That's the impression we get, and I wondered if you could talk about it. And then 
The second question is, we hear that inflation might be in the horizon in the industry. The service companies um, are beginning to get away with increasing their costs again. And I want to know, since you are focusing on cost reduction, whether that is just a preventive measure of inflation that is to come now that all the companies are moving forward with delayed projects, and whether it might end up being a wash-off. And how do you see that going forward? Would it affect your projects and your startups? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, very good. And Ian. could I ask a very short third question, very yeah. quick? One, um, one can, be, can become three, <laughs> but not four. Okay. Um, are you able to share with us um, what is your recovery period in Iraq when you made your numbers? We can talk generically about the um, nature of the Iraq contract, which I'm happy to do. Thanks, Christine. Well, firstly, on your refining question. Uh, in general, we don't have any issues at all with um, permits, uh, obtaining permits for activity in the United States or elsewhere. Uh, it is true that, and maybe this is what you um, are referring to, I'm not sure, in that there was a challenge to one of our permits um, by both an NGO uh, and some other uh, groups that challenged the permit in court. And as a result of that, the EPA have asked a number of questions about the permit. This is to do with the Whiting Refinery Modernization Project. But uh, firstly, our, both our construction and operating permits for that project are in place today. So that's the first thing I want to say. And they're perfectly legal. Um, the, the second thing is this is a process that the EPA felt obliged to respond to and it's in the hands of, uh, between the EPA and the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. We're progressing our conversations with them. Our analysis to date says that there's no issues fundamentally with any of the permits that we have. So I don't know where that intelligence is coming from. I can assure you we don't have any problems with our permitting. Right. Thanks, Ian. Andy, sector inflation. Yeah. As you look at sort of driving cost efficiency, I think it's important to look sort of simply beyond the, uh, the deflationary numbers. So I think in 2009, uh, as I said, we did a pretty good job at, at, at capturing deflation. I think we're probably one of the more aggressive companies in doing that. But that's only one element of good supply chain management. When you look at the fundamental ways in which you interact with the supply chain and the rigor with which you put com contracts in place and then abide by those contracts internally, it's a huge source of opportunity for us. And you know, as I talked, you know, we, we, we've pushed our agenda pretty hard on this. Only 30% of our spend is actually under category management, things that we would say there is appropriate rigor and quality within the, which, the way in which we do it. Sector leaders are up there at 80%. So we think there's a massive gap there for us to bridge in terms of bringing that discipline to the way in which we interact with the market. And the centralization of how we're doing things in the project world and the functional drive we're bringing to our regional businesses is all about capturing that prize. So, you know, you shouldn't think that just because the deflationary opportunity isn't as large that there isn't the opportunity to continue to drive cost efficiency. And I think, you know, the, the great thing is we start from a low point, and I think, therefore, we have real room to travel, and that's the piece that we're going to go after. And then there are other two elements that, you know, we, we need to bring into the equation. Uh, the, 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 the second one is about doing the right activity. I think in BP, as we've been getting the machine running again and restoring revenues, there's been a lot of activity focused out there. And I think we have the opportunity both in the upstream and, as Ian outlined, in the refining area to get the right activities planned well. 
And I think that will be another opportunity for us to take cost out of the system. And then finally, there is the efficiency with which you do things. And we're going to continuously drive a better operating efficiency into, into every activity. So, you know, I, I sort of just blow through the, the cost environment and actually say, just looking at our own activity set, things that we can control, we have a large opportunity set. And, and it's sort of fun actually lifting the cover off it, and, and, and my team's really going to enjoy getting after that opportunity set and, and bringing cost efficiency, you know, across the whole of the segment in a very disciplined way. Let's just hear a, a word from me on yeah. cost inflation. I mean, Christine, no, just back to your question, I think... The only inflation that we're having to deal with in the downstream is generally of our own making, uh, in the sense that we got quite inefficient in the way we plan and execute work. And so our response around cost efficiency, and particularly that $1.5 billion that I was talking about earlier, uh, that has nothing to do with inflation. I think we might get a slight help from the fact that the margin environment is so poor that a lot of the suppliers are probably going to be a bit more amenable to negotiation. But in general, this is about sustainable, robust efficiency to reposition where we find ourselves having, re- having got the plant back and running again. In terms of Iraq, I think what we've said is that the returns on a life cycle basis in Iraq will be commensurate with other opportunities in ENP. Um, the contract works uh, through two mechanisms. We get a fee per barrel and we get cost recovery from all incremental oil production above 100,000 barrels a day. What that means, because Ramela is already producing a million barrels a day, is that as production ramps up, we get our cost back. So as money goes in, it comes out. So the exposure at any one time in Iraq is really quite modest. That is a consequence of the redevelopment opportunity that we are pursuing in Ramela versus a new greenfield development. So it's quite different. Um, Gentleman behind you. Uh, Ian Reid from Macquarie. Tony, can I ask you a question about cost reduction? Um, Because last year, it seemed to me you had a rather aggressive target and you you made some rather aggressive noises about getting the whole business back to 2004 levels. Um, You know, it seems where I'm sitting, that's been diluted a bit. We're now just talking about the downstream down to that level. You're not giving us a kind of hard target for the whole business. We've got bits and pieces from refining, etc. You know, have you gone kind of as far as you can with the low-hanging fruit, and do you want to see you know, cost reduction being a less important part of the business, or is it, are you still very committed to, to trying to drive down to that sort of okay, level? Well, we should start by just rehearsing what we actually said, of course. Ian has, has put out a pretty aggressive cost efficiency cost reduction target for the downstream. I, I think we also need to recognise, of course, that... Uh, a year ago, the oil price was $40 a barrel, at the same level as it was in 2004. It's not $40 a barrel today, it's 80 And some of the pressures that we'd seen in the prior two or three years remain with us. It's back to Christine's question. So, as Andy said, we are going to focus very much on what we can do. But I would expect that as time goes on at this level, we will see increasing inflationary pressure coming back into the sector. If I, could, if I could just add, there. there's another part, part of the group, and that's the, uh, the, the, the other businesses and, and corporate, where you, you don't have the same inflationary pressures, where you've got, you've got primarily overhead costs or, or, or also challenged businesses where the drive for further reductions in, in cost uh, continues uh, unabated from, 
from 2009, and there will be more delivered as part of 2010 and beyond. Uh, yeah. Sarah Colin Smith from ICAP. Um, I was quite intrigued by the chart you show for uh, energy growth on page five because it seems to indicate that you're looking at oil demand or oil supply um, only averaging maybe 90 or 92 million barrels a day by 2030, which is a far lower growth rate, I think, than most commentators are running with. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your thinking behind that and what you think that implies price-wise or production limit-wise, because I think that's quite an interesting point. <coughs> well, <coughs> the first thing to say is it's a demand-side phenomena, so it, it will clearly depend on what happens in the world in terms of global economic growth over that time period and what energy policies are enacted over that time period. I think the range is from low 90s to you know, perhaps 105 is the sort of uh, the range that people talk about. Uh, we are um, probably more conservative because uh, we do think that uh, for the next few years economic growth is going to be quite modest. Uh, and we also believe that there is now a lot of alignment amongst most governments in the world that uh, energy f- efficiency is the thing to go after. So we expect to see much stronger energy efficiency. So in terms of the demand side, we, you know, we're sort of... We're more conservative. What, do, what does that actually mean, though, in terms of supplying it? I think it's sort of more interesting. Because, of course, if you take where we are today and you put the global industry decline curve to it, which happens every year, 4 to 5%, then it says that between now and 2030, the industry's got to bring on stream somewhere between 45 and 55 million barrels a day of new production. That's not a small task, quite a big task, actually. So, I, I mean, I, I, I remain where we've been for some time, that, you know, the, the issues are not about the rocks and about the resources, but it's about what goes on above the ground, the politics and the politics of access and the ease with which the industry can bring on new production. It remains challenging, but, you know, we're doing OK, but it remains challenging. Just, just to finish off on that question before my other two... Would you care to add some comments about uh, roughly what you think pricing might do or what sort of pricing is, is well, within we your have said on this? for some time now, Colin, that 60 to 90 seems like a sensible range. And, and there's some sound logic behind it. Whether it turns out to be the case, we'll see. But the logic is simple. On the supply side, you need $60 a barrel to get investment in the deep water of Brazil, deep water Angola, tar sands, whatever. The marginal barrels of today's supply curve need $60 a barrel. The 90 comes from our observation of what happened to consumers when the oil price went through 100. They stopped buying the product. It was too expensive. They changed their behaviours. And we saw a very dramatic fall-off in demand, particularly in the big developed nations as oil prices went through 100, more so in the US than Europe because of the tax structure. So, you know, it's all sound logic. Who knows whether it'll turn out to be the reality. But that's, what, that's the way we think about it. OK, thank you for that. Um, my so second now we have questions two and three. I hope they're not <laughs> as long. My, my second question was just, um, you've talked a lot about standardisation here, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you avoid the risk of ossification, because if you go for standardisation, how do you avoid 
I mean, you almost have to make mistakes, don't you, to have to, to learn, for example, how to drill a well better or to make a platform or a piece of a platform work together better. How do you avoid um, locking yourself into a situation where any improvement you get has to come from somebody outside? That's, that's the second question. And the third one was just in relation to your Eagle Ford um, position. There's obviously been quite a bit of press comment about you doing a deal with uh, Lewis, I think, in that area. And I just wondered if the five TCF opportunity you commented on included or excluded any deals that may be in contemplation today. Thank you. We won't answer the second, the third one, whatever it is, because we, we don't comment on market rumour. But I'll ask Andy to uh, talk to uh, how he's going to stop being up, become off, prevents himself from becoming ossified. I, I would say, Carl, we, we, we've got plenty of opportunity to learn. So we have, I think, genuinely not done things as well as we could. I, I look at it very simply. I, I look at it about a learning curve where how do you actually sort of standardise around something that works today, is the right solution, and then you take it as far as you can in terms of application. And, you know, take, let's take an example of the Gulf of Mexico today, where if you look at the standard Miocene reservoirs, they're between 10K and 15K trees. We know how to do that. We've designed a very good system. And now you want to sort of use that in a way where you get the maximum amount of efficiency from that application. We've got plenty to go at. I've got like 15 of those to do. And you do it more than in the Gulf of Mexico. You take it to the North Sea, Angola, and Centra. The next learning curve is going to be going out to stuff that's sort of 20K, which is going to be the paleogene. It's going to be more complex, hotter. It's going to be you know, higher pressure. How do we then you know, make the right step on that and then apply it at scale at the paleogene, where there will be you know, a significant number of wells, I believe, drilled? So you know, th there's always a step change in the technology. But the trick is to understand when you make the change and, and, and how you leverage what you have today. And I would say in the past, we got to bespoke engineering. Everything was a change every time. And all that does is introduce inefficiency, it introduces higher cost, it introduces risk. So I can assure you we're not going to become ossified and not actually challenge the edge. That's what we do well. But we need to know when the step change occurs. And we're very clear about when they're occurring and how we're going to apply our technology to those breakpoints but equally well, we're going to be disciplined about getting the most out of today when you've got something that works, apply it, work it well, uh, and get the leverage from it. And that's the point of being, uh, being of the scale we are. You know, four million barrels a day of production. We have the opportunity to apply the scale to a broader set of opportunities than others. Therefore, we should be operating more efficiently, and that's what we're getting after. Well, right, so Alistair Simon, Namura. Um, two questions on the cost curve. Um, the first is U.S. gas. I think uh, last year you gave us the figure sort of $4 across the gas portfolio. I wonder where you see that sitting now uh, for unconventional, unconventional. Um, and the second question is uh, heavy oil, how you see uh, the, the pace of development on the, uh, on the Husky joint venture in this environment. Okay, Mr. Ingalls. Um, both of us start with the go in reverse order on, um, on heavy oil. Um, I just want to sort of maybe clear about, you know, our, our approach to heavy oil. Sort of two big things that I think distinguish BP's approach from others. The first is that we're approaching uh, the oil sands purely from uh, a process that involves in situ SAGD, steam-assisted gravity drainage. You know, why? Uh, we believe that our deep reservoir knowledge is applicable there and, and therefore allows us to bring technology leverage, the whole point about creating advantage from applying the, the, uh, the technology. 
So we're not doing mining, so it is focused on, uh, on SAG-D. Um, the same thing as you look across the portfolio is that we've applied a carbon price to all projects and therefore uh, Sunrise, the, the, the Husky joint venture, sits within that competitive environment of, uh, of all new projects which uh, have a carbon price. As you look at Sunrise in particular, we've made a lot of progress in uh, 2009 around uh, reducing the capital costs. Uh, we're now uh, at a point where we're integrating those costs into the overall development scheme, and we anticipate making a final investment decision on, on the first stage of Sunrise towards the end of this year. So it was on the list of project uh, FIDs. But again, it's a very clear strategy that we have in Canada. It's about leveraging our technology. It's about ensuring that, irrespective of the regulatory environment, we're anticipating future carbon uh, prices. And then, as Ian has said, it's actually about a very distinctive supply chain which links that source of equity crude to our refining capacity in, in Whiting, which allows us to uh, fully optimize the, uh, the uh, supply chain. And we have uh, the Toledo refinery in particular for the, uh, for the Husky development. So that's uh, heavy oil. In terms of the outlook for U.S. Uh, gas prices, uh, you know, I think you know, today we're, we're certainly going through a time period where there's sort of plenty of supply around, is what I'd say at the moment. You know, we have, I think, two effects going on. We, we have a, a, a significant number of LNG projects which have started up um, through 2009 and, and continue into 2010, uh, sort of 7 to 8 BCF a day of gas. That gas is finding its way to market. Some of it is staying in Asia Pacific. Some of it is, is, is in the Middle East. And some of it is, is finding its way to the U.S. So there is some impact on supply in the U.S. I think the other thing I would say is that as you look at shale, shale performance, I think it continues to surprise people in terms of the robustness of the, um, of the reservoir performance there. Um, you know, we've had a significant reduction in, in rigs in North America gas, but we haven't seen the same fall off in, in, in supply. So, you know, what I'd say in, in, in the near term is that it's a relatively um, robust supply position. And um, I think, you know, any improvement in price will, will depend on when we see demand returning to the economy. And so it will be sort of demand-led. But supply is robust and will continue to be uh, robust. And you say from our perspective, our business in North America Gas, it, it, it made money in a $4 Henry Hub world, which is good. It actually was cash break even in a $4 Henry Hub, which is back to the point about the quality of the resource base. I think we've got a very distinctive set of assets, significant resource scale in North America gas, and we're driving efficiency into it. So, you know, we, we feel very comfortable about the business, and uh, it is about a margin business because I think there is a, a limited price upside now simply because of the, um, the quality of the, of the shale gas resource. Thanks, Anyone else on the uh, on the left here? Yeah, gentleman at the back. It's uh, Hamish Clegg from J.P. Morgan Casnove. Um, quick question for you, Tony. Uh, a few years ago, I remember you saying at the strategy presentation we were all you were focusing on cost efficiency. Obviously, you've done a good job, and I'm just wondering if you see opportunity in, to impart that new culture of cost efficiency and standardisation on potentially inorganic. Um, acquisitions as a, something going forward. And then a question for Byron. Um, do we see the sort of recent currency moves, dollar sterling, as an opportunity to increase the dividend a little bit? Okay. Well, well, we continue to obviously, like many people, 
look at opportunities. We've been, I think, quite transparent about where we think there are gaps in the portfolio and have made some progress in filling them. The deals that Andy talked about in shale gas, the, the um, uh, filling in, beginning to fill in our um, Asia-Pacific gas position through the coal bed methane opportunity in Indonesia. So we continue to look, but frankly, I would expect most of our um, portfolio work to be either done organically or through, at the asset level. I'd be surprised if we, you know, I could always be surprised, but I would be surprised if uh, we found good value in the corporate uh, side of things. Yeah, it may, may happen, but it's not, not, not something that we're terribly focused on. But we do think there will be opportunities at the asset level, and we're going to continue to sort of seek those out. Byron. Well, you need to always remember that we're a dollar-based company, uh, most of the revenues come in dollars. Most of the costs are in dollars. Uh, we set our debt in dollars. We, we declare our dividend in, in dollars. Uh, the, uh, as, as far as the, the, the dollar-based uh, uh, dividend, uh, Tony and, and I have both remarked about the, the fragility of the current environment, the uncertainties that are out there, and it's, it, it feels too, too soon to be, to be talking about that until there's a clear definition of of, of how the world economy is going to sort itself out in the, the months ahead. Having said all that, since the dollar is strengthening, uh, that means the sterling-based dividend will be going up for, for those UK-based uh, shareholders. One or two in the room, hopefully. Uh, Irene. <coughs> Thank you. It's Irene Himon at Exan BNP Paribas. I had Two questions. First, uh, on TNK BP, which um, I think accounts for something like 40% of your unproved resources, um, it has a reserve replacement ratio typically materially higher than yours. Uh, you still talk about growth of 1% to 2%, but clearly looking ahead and surely under a new management team, there are options, and one option is to, to be a little bit more aggressive on CapEx and to invest for faster growth which helps your top line but clearly pays lower dividends. So can you talk a little bit about your view of this trade-off and is there a natural preference for where you would like TNKBP to go to? And secondly, a question uh, for Byron on finance. Um, you do finance quite a lot of your debt um, in the short-term commercial paper market. Um, in an environment where base rates are almost zero and eventually will have to go up, does this um, remain something that you might address at some point? Thank you. Okay, thanks, Irene. Um, I think in, in TNKBP, the, the issue is not really the trade-off between capital investment and dividends. It, it is the capability that we've built and continue to build in the company to execute the activity set efficiently. Uh, and the biggest constraint on expanding the rate of growth is efficient execution uh, predicated on the, on the capability that's been built. The company's still a very young company. It's done amazing things in the last four or five years, but we're still building capability. And I'm certain when our new CEO gets uh, his hands around it, it, we'll be having a conversation about how do we accelerate the building of capability and therefore accelerate the rate of production growth over the next five years or so. As you rightly point out, there's a big resource there. But some of it 
is quite challenging, and we need to make certain we do it in the most efficient way. So it's a very good question, but I think it's not about a trade-off between investment and dividends. It is, a, it is about capability building and the efficiency with, with which we can execute projects. Yeah, if I just add, Irene, I think you, you have started to see the emergence of a, of a new track record, which is, you know, we started off for the first three or four years, it was all about well repair, you know, better ESPs, better water flooding, all that sort of stuff. You know, in the last, really the last year, only the last year, we've had the startup of some new greenfields successfully, uh, VC, UVAT, Kamanoia. And I think that it is a switch now from working the base hard to bringing in large major projects. And that's a big change in capability. So that's the trend we're on now. And it's the pace at which we can build that. And also, it's the pace at which the, uh, the supplier um, capability in, in Russia is there to, to support it. But it's a great challenge to have, actually, which is to say, great resource base, and we can actually do more with it. And um, I think that's a fun, fun challenge. CP. Yeah, uh, uh, Irene, we, we, we had issued an, an awful lot of, of commercial paper uh, around this time last year as, as we went between 2008-2009 with the, the, the deep uncertainty about how financial markets were going to, going to evolve during that period of time. Uh, during the course of, of, of last year, we, we, we went into debt capital markets and, and raised a, a, a lot of debt there, so we're carrying a much uh, reduced amount of commercial paper. That having been said, uh, we, st- we have about two-thirds of our debt is structured as, uh, as floating rate uh, debt, and that, that debt obviously at, at the current time is, uh, is uh, very, very favorably uh, priced with respect to, to interest costs. It's something we look at, at a regular basi- on a regular uh, basis, and, uh, uh, and we, if we saw uh, reasons to, 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 to change that position, to, to fix more, we would do so. But given the steepness of, of the curve right now and the general weakness of, of the global economy, uh, I, I don't think uh, right now is, is the time to do that. Great. So I'm going to go now to the phone. because We have one phone question, which is Jason Kenny in Edinburgh, I presume. Jason? Wouldn't be the same without me. So uh, I've got three questions, if I may. Yep, carry on. Um, in addition to the, the Husky uh, access, do you see BP investing more directly in Canadian heavy oil supply for the whiting feed? Uh, the second question is, uh, given the focus on tight gas and the weakness in, in gas markets, um, how do you see your LNG business playing out over the medium term. There was little specific discussion on LNG in, in the strategy today. And the third question is, uh, uh, obviously, the, the key message today is capital efficiency, cash costs, and margin quality. And I noted uh, Ian's comments on aiming for a 10% return downstream under a 2009 environment. It kind of takes me back to the early part of last decade when return on capital employed targets were all the rage and the, the myth of synergy was very thematic. Uh, are, you, are you tempted to stick your neck out and give us a group Roachi target for uh, this year or for 2015, assuming some sort of base uh, assumptions, oil price, refining margins? Uh, and if not, uh, maybe you could comment as to whether you see yourself as being best in class in terms of Roachi in the medium term. 
Okay, let me start at the bottom, Jason. The short answer to your question is no. <laughs> We're not going to give you a rangey target. I don't think I, I never, have never felt that targeting one metric is the right thing. You've got to look at a range of metrics that characterise the financial performance of any enterprise. And any of us looking at an investment look at a range of metrics, not just one. So that seems to apply just as well to BP. Um, what I would say is that I think we're going to see on, on, the, on the given environment our returns improving as we drive capital efficiency and cost efficiency. And as I said earlier, the margin structure, particularly in the upstream, is representative of what we're producing today. It will be the same tomorrow. So I do think we'll um, see our returns improve. And you can see on one of the charts I showed, we are certainly not the, uh, the, uh, the leader in the sector today. So hence opportunity. Um, I think on Husky uh, or Whiting or Canadian Heavy Oil, what we've said is that over time we want to create a balanced portfolio between refining capacity in the northern tier refineries and upstream equity production. We clearly aren't there yet, but that's what our strategic objective is over the medium term. And as opportunities turn up, we will try and seek to crystallise them. Uh, And in the interim we will have a variety of short-term supply agreements in place to uh, run heavy Canadian crude through Whiting, because that's why we built the thing. But over the medium and longer term, what we're looking to do is create a a balanced position between the refineries and upstream. Uh, Andy, LNG. Yeah, if I just add on on the uh, the oil sands, it's hugely important that you get quality. So this is about uh, quality, uh, oil sands, it's about SAGD, it's about things that we can apply our technology to and therefore bring additional value. And we have to meet those, those hurdles. We absolutely believe uh, Sunrise does. Um, but if we bring additional resource in, it has to be within, uh, within that frame. If you look at LNG, you know, I, I, we're vying in our number one, number two in terms of the amount of LNG we, we produce uh, today. Looking forward, the, the sources of growth are in three areas. All three, I believe, are, are, are truly cost competitive. There's growth around Tangu. We've just acquired additional acreage in Tangu. So there is the addition to expand, uh, expand Tangu, and, and that's one of the projects that we're looking at. The other thing that's really quite intriguing is coal bed methane in, uh, in Indonesia. Uh, this is... Uh, access to recent acreage uh, that overlays the Sanga Sanga PSA, which, which uh, supplies the Vico um, uh, facility, which supplies LNG to, to Bong Tang. Bong Tang's not fun, full at the moment, and therefore we have the real opportunity to leverage the existing field infrastructure and take that coal bed methane to, uh, to LNG. Uh, the challenge I've got for the team is for that to be the first uh, CBM to LNG, and uh, I, I think there's every chance that, that we can do that. And then there's browse uh, in Australia, which would be the um, you know, development of a significant resource off the, uh, off the northwest shelf. So there remains growth. Um, I, I do believe that uh, there is a, a separation in markets as well. I think the, the U.S. is in particular going to be dominated by a domestic closed market, which is around uh, a Henry Hub price, which is, which is sort of local. Um, I do think there are opportunities for um, quality LNG pricing, which is what's been demonstrated uh, at the moment. Okay, thanks. Anyone? There's one over on the right, and I think we're going to make this, unless someone starts agitating aggressively, we're going to make this the last question. Thank you. It's Neil Morton at MF Global. Just the one question. Um, 
What's on financial flexibility? I was intrigued uh, last month to see you announce a scribble tentative to your dividend. Now, I understand some of the issues behind it, um, the option value, uh, avoiding stamp duty, clearly saving some cash as well. But in recent years, as the oil majors have actually struggled to grow the top line, they've sort of fallen back to sort of per share metrics, whether that's growth in production per share, reserves per share, and of course, earnings per share. So really, what's the thinking behind a scribble alternative? I mean, it's a ver- effectively a reverse buyback. I mean, are you telling us you've become a growth company again? Well, I think we're saying that this is a good piece of financial flexibility and good optionality for our existing shareholders, Neil. So they have the opportunity to reinvest in BP. If they're UK, they don't have to pay stamp duty. And clearly, because of the timing, there will be optionality embedded in it, and some people will take advantage of that. So I think it's about that. And then from our side of things, it's about additional financial flexibility. I don't think it's... Uh, I, you shouldn't read anything in it, into it beyond that. Uh, and, of course, you know, the, you're right. It, it is, in some senses, a reverse of buyback, but the dilution effects are very, very modest. Very modest. And I think if, if I've got the numbers right, I, I think we bought back $50 billion worth of stock in the period of the buyback, more than 25% of the market cap today. This script will have dilution effects of around 1% a year. So, you know, it's, it is about optionality and flexibility. Um, we have one final, final, final question on the, uh, on the phone. Rahim Karim at Barcap. The evolution of the resource base. A couple of years ago, you talked about the aspirations of potentially growing uh, uh, production out to 2020 with the existing resource base. It's obviously increased by a significant amount. Um, I was just wondering how that uh, production profile has changed, and if it, if it hasn't changed, what are the sort of assets that uh, are dropping out uh, from that resource? Well, the short answer is it hasn't changed, as Andy was at great pains to point out. Um, so, you know, I, I, well, Andy. Yeah, I think if you, if you look at the, the, at the near term, we would actually say that it, it hasn't changed in terms of the, uh, the overall, overall growth uh, target, the 1% to 2% off a, off a 2008 index. I think what we have done is, is sort of prioritised around the high margin areas. So you're seeing the, uh, the quality of projects, the North Sea, Gulf of Mexico, Azerbaijan, Angola. So, you know, hence the, the earlier question about the quality of the margin that's going to come through. It, it's absolutely consistent with, with where we are today. I think as you look beyond 2015, then this is all about the conversion of the access and expiration success that we've had over the last two years. Uh, five years of, of resource replaced in two years. And it's about growth associated with the palagene. We, we, we had a discussion about the pace at which that would, would come through. And, and it's about projects that are currently under appraisal today. The, uh, the gas position in Oman, the gas position in, uh, in Jordan, the success we've had in, in exploration in, in, in Egypt, the West Nile Delta. Those are the projects that are now much firmer than they were a year ago, either through actually completing an access deal, uh, completing uh, a phase of, of appraisal, which gives us confidence in the resource, or actually an exploration success, as is the case in the Palagene and uh, in the West Nile Delta. So, you know, uh, it, it is all just about this continuous drive around bringing high-quality resource in uh, to the portfolio, appraising it, and, and actually demonstrating that we've got quality projects. 
Uh, and, you know, if, if there is a sentiment, it is, uh, actually, over the last two years, we've made a lot of progress on that, which is giving us increased confidence on the, the, the 2015-plus uh, picture. There's not a lot you can do in the next four years other than make sure you've got the right projects, being worked in the right way, and confidence in the margin structure that they bring. So that's what we've done on that piece. And, and, and the longer term, I, I genuinely uh, believe that the last two years has, has underpinned that in a way that we couldn't see previously. Great, thanks. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I think we're going to call it a day there. Thank you very much for your time. I have one final thing to do today, which is to introduce my new boss, who's been sitting patiently and quietly at the back of the room here, uh, assessing what it is he's inherited. <laughs> so, Carl, and, of course, the team. So, <laughs> we'll hear later, no doubt, about how we've done. But, Carl Heinrich. Over to you. Well, uh, let, let me just take the uh, opportunity. It's nice to introduce myself, Carl Annex Fonberg. I'm the new chairman. It's, um, I hope you find it worthwhile the day. But, of course, for me, it's, it's an exciting day, and it's important for me to hear your questions because in one way or the other, you are, whether you're analysts or investors, you are the voice of the shareholder uh, that at the end of the day owns this company. So the input that we get is... Of, uh, of really great value. So I hope you enjoyed it, and I look forward to lots of discussions with you going forward. I think you guys did well. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. well, thank you very much, everyone. We'll look forward to seeing you as we uh, do our trips around the world over the next two or three weeks.